Take your Bible and turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3, um, we're going to be looking at verses 20 through 24, the end of the chapter in Genesis 3 this morning. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are a handful in the back there, and uh, feel free to grab one of those um, so that you could have these words in front of you this morning. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are paperback copies as well on the table back there. Feel free to take one of those. Uh, That's our gift to you this morning. We want you to go away from this place uh, having God's Word with you. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 20. I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed him. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Home is a funny concept. Uh, Our apartment um, is one that in April will have lived there now for, I think, four years. Um, And many of you know, and many of you participated in the renovation of that apartment, um, which was a, a great joy to us. But yesterday, I was doing some cleaning. Rebecca was at a baby shower, and I was doing some cleaning, and I was looking around, and I was seeing all of the projects that over the course of the last four years have remained undone. Um, Two years ago, on Memorial Day, I tiled our bathroom, um, and there's still no trim around the door. Uh, I look at it every day because when we tiled the bathroom, we also painted it gray from this Pepto-Bismol pink that we chose when we first moved in. I don't know who made that decision. I'm going to put it on Rebecca. No, I'll, I'll own it. I'll own it. We, we made the decision together. And, uh, and, and what I found out was that I still look at that Pepto-Bismol pink around the trim of the door and think to myself, this needs to be done. Home provides comfort for us. It provides a place where we go and where we feel at home. And yet, for us here in our earthly homes, there are many things that remain unfinished. There are many things that, that when we look up and, and look around, we see that this isn't a perfect expression of, of home. There is a project that remains unfinished, or there is something that, that we have to do in order to, to be comfortable that load of laundry that sat in the corner for the last couple of weeks, or the painting project that it stands half-finished, or all of the holes in the wall put by wrestling children. Um, And so when we get to this text in Genesis, we see very clearly a, a loss of home. And we wonder where the idea or thought or concept comes from that we don't ever feel quite like we're at home, except for maybe in a moment. From time to time, we think, where does that come from? And, and how, how is it that things aren't, in fact, quite right wherever we are? Whether it be here in the midst of other believers worshiping, or whether it be 
in our, in our homes or at work, wherever we find ourselves throughout our week. In our time in Genesis together, this is, our, I think, our 10th week in the book of Genesis. In, in, in our time together, we've seen several biblical themes come into light for us. And this morning, we're going to introduce three more. But we've seen several themes uh, come into clear focus. Here are a few of them. This is not an exhaustive list, but here are a few that we've discussed. God is the creator of everyone and everything. Man is the creature. God is the creator who gives man his purpose. God's divine word and the necessity of adherence to it. The distinct roles established for man and woman. The subtlety of sin and the pervasiveness of sin. The all-encompassing nature of it. Redemption and justification, and we've seen promise and covenant, and all of these things have been revealed to us in the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. And these things remain themes throughout the rest of Scripture, all the way up until we get to the end, the final words of the book of Revelation. But in these three verses this morning, we see three new ideas introduced to us that will be extremely important and oftentimes are talked about a lot by Christians. These three verses... Uh, And these three biblical themes give us, in these four verses, five verses, give us a, a clear picture of faith, of sacrifice, and of exile. Now, we talk, like I said, we talk about these things in the Christian life quite a bit, faith probably being the most, sacrifice being maybe the second, a close second. Exile is not one that we really talk about, and so maybe we'll spend a little bit more time thinking through exile this morning. But those are the three ideas that are governed here. And I want you to see that in verse 20, we see faith introduced. And I'll explain that in a moment. In verse 21, we see the idea of sacrifice introduced. And then in 22 through 24, those three verses give us a picture of exile. A people driven from, from their home. So consider these with me. Look at, verse, look at verse 20. This is just a simple verse. And, and we may be tempted to to gloss over it. But I want to point out a couple things that I think are really important for us here. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Cool. Adam named everything in the garden and he also gives his wife a name here, his wife being named Eve. Now Eve means living. It just means living. And so it would be natural that he would Say that she is, if she's the mother of all living, that he would give her the name living. But as we unpack this, we see something that Adam is doing here on the heels of God's words given to him in 17 through 19. This curse that comes upon the ground and this curse that happens uh, in the garden because of Adam's sin, uh, the curse that makes work difficult, the curse that makes uh, our our efforts unproductive and unyielding, we see Adam, his response is something that's incredibly important. He doesn't say, oh, woe is me. Look at this. This is such trash. I'm a victim. Um, He looks at what God has said to him, and he recalls even further back to what God said to the serpent in verse 15. We've talked about this as length, and this is going to be a touch point for us. We're going to continue to come back to verse 15 over and over and over again throughout the course of the time in Genesis chapters 1 through 11 because it's of utmost importance. But you'll remember that God said to the serpent, 
I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now remember, I guess it was about four weeks ago, three or four weeks ago, when we unpacked this verse, we said that this is the gospel preached to Adam. God is promising redemption to Adam in this moment. God is demonstrating that he has a plan, despite sin entering the world in Genesis chapter 3, through the actions of the man and the woman, God has a plan for humanity. He is not caught off guard by their sin, but plans to send one, the seed or the offspring of the woman, to redeem his people, to bring them back to the Garden of Eden. That's an incredible promise embedded within a curse. This is a covenant. It's unconditional. God says, I'm going to do this thing. And he doesn't say, if you do that thing, I'll do this thing. He just says, I'm going to do this thing. He's going to bring someone, the seed of the woman, to crush the head of the serpent and ultimately to defeat death. Now, I don't know how much of that Adam understood, but he did understand that God was promising something to him. The mess that Adam and Eve had made because of their sin, God was saying, I'm going to deliver you from it. I'm going to make this right. And so in verse 20 then, we see Adam believing that promise. Believing that promise. By faith, he looks at that promise and believes it. When we need to do a little bit of, of, of work here in this though, first we need to ask ourselves, what is, is faith? We don't see that word here, but Adam acts in a way that demonstrates that he believes what is what God says in verse 15 is true. Often faith is described in our culture, especially in Christian circles, as, as this thing, you know a thing, and you need to know this thing or believe it. And so faith acts as a bridge to get you from A to B. I want to propose to you that that's not how faith works biblically. Um, someone might just swoop in when you're having a difficult time and say something to you like, uh, you just got to have faith. It's going to work out. Don't worry about it. Now, that's entirely unhelpful, especially for someone who's concrete sequential like I am, and many of you are. Like, okay, all right, thank you, but that is wildly unhelpful. The problem with that idea is that it's usually disconnected from anyone or everything. When we say that, we say faith, just have faith, it's usually disconnected from anyone or anything. Biblically, faith requires a foundational truth. It requires a foundational truth. And, and here's what I mean and how this text shapes up. Again, God promises Adam and Eve that he'll provide that escape for them from death that their sin brought about in, in verse 15 of chapter 3. And again, I don't know how, how the details shook out for Adam or in his mind. What, what did this look like? But he did understand that someone was going to come. Someone w will come from his line that would cor uh, correct the wrongs that Adam committed. So, this is how this verse represents faith for us. In faith, Adam names his wife, names her Eve, mother of all living, the name that means living, the one that would crush the head of the serpent. Now, in God's divine plan, it would come years and years later. I wonder if, at first, when Adam and Eve had their first son, who we know to be Cain, who we'll talk about next week, Cain ultimately ends up murdering his brother, spoiler alert, but the, the understanding that that someone would come from his, his line to crush the head of the serpent, Adam 
clearly gives us a picture that he believes that to be true. So ask this question. This is the question that I want to ask this morning before we move on from faith. What are the key elements that we see in Adam here that's demonstrated just in this one simple verse that make up the faith or his faith? First thing, first thing, I'm going to give you three things here. The first thing is that faith is rooted in God's promises contained in God's word. You'll remember I just said, faith requires a foundational truth. You have to be rooted somewhere. So the the foundational truth that Adam is choosing to believe by naming his wife Eve is found in Genesis 3.15. This unconditional covenant based on God's grace, God was going to bring an end to the effects of sin that Adam and Eve brought about. He was even going to bring an end to death itself. In the New Testament, when we think about Jesus, he often says something that, that oftentimes it should make our radar go up. He says to his disciples, or to someone else, usually his disciples, he says, oh, you of little faith. He calls them you of little, little faith. And if you've ever wondered what he means by that, well, let's consider a text first. Matthew 8, 23 through 27. This is a familiar passage to us. It's Jesus calming, calming the storm. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him up, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the seas, and there was great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? Now, we've even talked about this in our time in Genesis, how how Jesus, the creator, God, spoke to creation and calms the winds and the sea. That's not what we're focusing on here. But when Jesus says to his disciples, O you of little faith, we have to ask ourselves, what is the foundational truth that Jesus wants his disciples to believe? What is the primary thing that Jesus wants his disciples to think about and to believe. Why is this even recorded? I think it's because the most frequent command given in Scripture is some form of do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Over and over and over again in the Old Testament, God is telling his people to not be afraid. And the command is usually accompanied by the reason we shouldn't be afraid. God says something like, for the Lord your God is with you. Don't be afraid, for the Lord your God is with you. Jesus is God, and he was in the boat with his disciples. God was with the disciples in a very unique way. The word in flesh dwelled among us, and he was with his disciples in the boat. The Lord their God was, in fact, with them. Therefore, don't be afraid. And yet, they were afraid. Their terror was an indicator that they had little confidence in God's promises, that foundational truth found in God's word. And so Jesus calls them those of little faith. If they believed God, if they believed that his word was sure and that it was true, and if they understood and obeyed the command to not be afraid, they would have, in fact, thought differently about their situation. 
Without a working knowledge of God's word and the promises contained therein, you can't have faith. It's impossible. It is literally impossible. Without, no matter what you think or what anyone says to you, it's impossible to have faith without a working knowledge of God's, God's word. Because faith without foundation is just wishful thinking. That's all it is. Just wishful thinking. The second thing we learn about faith here is that faith is future-oriented. Faith is future-oriented. Hebrews chapter 11 is the definitive chapter on faith. And many of you I know read this, have read this many times. Verse 11 says, or verse 1 of chapter 11 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. What this means is that faith is future-oriented. What will come to pass, not now, but the hope of something in the future. And there is certainty in faith. Assurance is how the ESV translated. If you're looking at the ESV this morning like I am. Assurance and conviction. Conviction is this deep-seated notion that we have. Being fully convinced of something. Now, I want to be clear again. Our, our hope in, or our faith is rooted in, in uh in God's promises contained in his God's word in God's word not in our personal desires. And so even if faith is future oriented, we must say that it is it it has to have its roots in foundational truth. So, a hope that is rooted in his in our own personal do- desires is not faith. If you say I, I hope to own a home someday or I hope that this food tastes good. That's how a lot of Christians think about faith. But that's not a biblical understanding of faith. Note again Adam's example. Adam heard God's word in 3.15 and believed what God said. In the future, God would bring through Adam's wife Eve a redeemer who would restore humanity to the garden. Third thing about faith that we see in this verse. It may seem like a simple thing, but faith takes action. Faith takes action. Adam names his wife Eve as a result of God's promise. That's action. He was taking action. He has a faith that through her offspring, redemption will come. And so he names his wife Eve, which means living, because she is the mother of all living. Consider with me another New Testament passage. This is James chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. The apostle James writes, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Now historically, in some instances, people have taken this to mean, or James to mean, or that he's advocating for justification by works. Essentially that you can be saved by doing good things. That if I just, my good stuff outweighs my bad stuff, then that's that's great, I'll I'll be saved. That's not at all what's going on here. That's not a clear picture of salvation. We are saved by grace through faith alone. 
James, in fact, is saying here in this text that what you believe should cause you to act. And that if what you believe doesn't cause you to act, then you don't really believe it. Or maybe we can say it like this. If you say you have faith, but that doesn't change how you live, you don't have faith. Faith always works itself out in action. Now, this is a, this is a plague on the church, and it's a definition of the hated word that we hear over and over again, hypocrite. Hypocrite. Someone who claims to believe something but remains unchanged by that belief. That's probably the most fundamental definition of hypocrite. No one hates a hypocrite. They just hate hypocrites that don't know they're hypocrites, right? Some of you find yourself in this dangerous position. Sunday morning rolls around, you pop in, but Saturday night you're living for yourself. And Monday morning you go to work so that you can live for yourself on Saturday night. And then somehow think that popping in on Sunday morning is going to clear that up for you. But the fact of the matter is that if you don't love your neighbor on Saturday night and Monday morning, you don't love God on Sunday morning. No matter how loudly you sing, no matter how intently you listen. Faith takes action. Think about that James passage again for one second. He says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, And one of you says, go in peace, be warm and be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? There's no action accompanied with the person that James describes here. His use of brother or sister is meant to point you to fellow Christians, to fellow believers. And so if you see someone in need here this morning and you ignore them, you have acted faithlessly. You may say, I have my own problems. I'm struggling to pay my own bills. But God has promised you in his word to be the source of your needs. You can freely give what you have to others in the eager expectation and hope that God will fulfill his promise to care for you and to know what it is that you need. This is just one example of faith in action. But if we're to sum up this verse in particular and to think about faith here and Adam's action By naming the woman Eve, Adam rooted himself in God's promises contained in God's word, hopefully looking to the future. Adam rooted himself in God's promises contained in God's word, hopefully looking forward to the future. Or we could just say simply, Adam had faith. Adam had faith that God would do what God said he would. Move to verse 21 with me. Consider this. This is sacrifice now. I want to consider the idea of sacrifice. The Lord God made for Adam and for, his, and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. If you watch TV ever, you'll notice oftentimes in advertising and commercials in particular, they're always trying to convince you that you don't need to make sacrifices in this life. They're always trying to demonstrate to you that you can lose weight without giving up pizza or chocolate cake. They're always trying to say to you that it's, it's not okay to just be okay. You don't have to sacrifice customer service to have great cell phone coverage. You can have both. You can have your cake and you can eat it too. And so we as people, I think in a, in a consumeristic Western society, my voice cracked. I'm sorry, I'm like 70%. Forgive me. 
Just ignore it. We're always trying to eliminate sacrifices. We're always trying to eliminate the fact that we have to give something up. There are 72 different options for mustard at the grocery store. And you don't have to give up your options. You can capitalize on those. And so here in verse 21, we see sacrifice being introduced. Back in verse 7, we saw that the man and woman sowed, look at that verse with me, verse 7 of chapter 3. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. Second half of the verse. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now these coverings were inadequate because right in the next section here of text, we see that God makes his way into the garden and they feel naked. They hid themselves. Those coverings were not adequate for them. The fig leaves could not cover the shame and the embarrassment that the man and woman felt as a result of their sin. So here we see the first outworking in our verse, in verse 21, we see the first outworking of death that came as a result of the sin of man and woman. God says in verse 19 uh, that you shall return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is an allusion to the fact that Adam's going to die. He's going to die and he's going to go back into the ground. But this death that, that he would experience was prefigured by the death of the animal that God had or made, skin, made uh, clothes for them out of these skins. These animals had to die for this covering to be made. The garments covered Adam and Eve physically since they were naked and now ashamed as we saw in verse 7. And their guilt and shame that came through their sin now needed covering as well. And the sin of Adam and Eve introduced death into the world. And in order for them not to die themselves, something else had to die in their place as a substitute. Their sin inflicted death upon a creature, the animal that God made their garments out of. The implications for the rest of Scripture are vast, and we see this going on all throughout, all throughout Scripture. Before we get out of the first five books of the Bible, God sets up an entire system, an entire sacrificial system, to temporarily atone for the sins of his people. But these sacrifices would happen to happen over and over and over again, day after day and year after year. Just like the garments that God provided Adam and Eve with, They would wear out, and another animal would have to be sacrificed to make new ones. The sacrificial system made temporary reparations for the sin and the effects of it. But this all leads us to Jesus Christ, and through his sacrifice, he would atone for sin once and for all. Hebrews 7.27 says it very clearly. He has no need to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Now Jesus didn't have to offer sacrifice for his own sin because he didn't sin. He was sinless. And therefore, as the spotless lamb of God was able to end or to be the sacrifice that would end all sacrifices. The sin that entered the world through Adam and Eve would ultimately be covered 
by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The sin that you and I so willingly participate in is ultimately covered by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So as Christians, we must understand that the world without sacrifice is not possible. Pizza, losing weight, not going to happen. But forgiveness of sins without sacrifice is impossible. God's grace to us is that, that in our lives, that they aren't taken as a result of sin, but the life of Jesus Christ in our stead. So what does that mean for us? What does that actually mean for us? What it really means for us is that we should all be dead right now. We should be dead right now and in hell. But God's grace means that Jesus died on our account. Your sin drove the nails into Jesus Christ. You may be tempted to think that your sin isn't a big deal. It is. It is. It's a big deal. What's a little jealousy or anger? What's a little gossip? What's a little bit of lust? What's a bit of indulging in pornography? What, what about a small amount of bitterness or frustration? So what if I act self-centeredly? I deserve it. What if I ignore the marginalized or those who are hurting? You may be tempted to think that your sin isn't hurting anyone. But it was the driving force that held Jesus on the cross. Your sin never just affects you. It hurts loved ones. It hurts the church. It hurts our community. And it killed Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We all have done more damage than we possibly could know. Jesus' sacrificial death makes all the repairs. It makes all things new. So what's the response to that truth? What's the response to that truth? Jesus is going to fix it all, so do what we want, right? No, not at all. Rather, we ought to be present or to present our bodies as living sacrifices. Not dying a physical death like Jesus died, but dying daily to self and self-interest. Following Jesus by imitating him, becoming more like him in his death. Again, not a physical one, but one that dies to ourselves, the self-interest, and is raised up out of the grave to love our neighbor and to love the Lord our God. So, the sacrifice we see in Genesis 3.21 that points us to Jesus' once and all for all sacrifice also leads us to live lives of sacrifice. Now, the third thing that we see here in this text, in verses 22 through 24, is exile. We'll spend a little bit of time here and we'll draw a conclusion. Exile is introduced here. The eternal life that belonged to Adam and Eve before they sinned, they do not possess anymore. The life that was represented through the tree in the middle of the garden would not belong to the man and to the woman. And so Adam and Eve are sent out of the garden, and this initiates our exile. We're lumping us in with that. I say our exile intentionally. The theme of exile is all throughout Scripture. This is why I started by talking about our home and how even when we're home, we don't quite feel like we're home always. Maybe you grew up in a loving environment with parents who cared for you and loved you, and there's comfort there. Even when it wasn't perfect, there were times where you felt like it may have been pretty close to perfect. 
When people find that place where they fit, they say they feel like they're at home. Maybe you didn't grow up in an environment that was safe and comfortable, and you didn't experience these things, and you wonder what home is like. And so the idea of exile is the idea of not being at home. You're in the unknown. When you come to the end of Genesis, you see God's people. When we get to Genesis chapter 50, God's people, they're in the, the nation of Israel is in Egypt. They're in Egypt. Egypt is not the home of God's people. And Exodus then, the next book in the Bible, outlines God bringing the nation of Israel out of Egypt. Israel's final destination is this place called the Promised Land. You may have heard of it. But because of the disobedience of the people, they had to wait 40 years to get into the Promised Land. And when they finally were able to enter into the the Promised Land, the things that the promised land were meant to provide for them, it simply doesn't. Later in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel goes into captivity at the hands of Babylon. This is an exile. Ultimately, they're allowed to return to their home, but when they come back, they find their home is no longer really home. The Old Testament prophets began to use the idea of exile as something far greater than just being where you were meant to be. That something greater is what's lost here in Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 through 24. It's a losing of the garden, which was our perfect home. When we get to the New Testament, we find Jesus. Jesus went from town to town and he wandered. Matthew 8, 19 through 20, a scribe approaches Jesus and says to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Why would Jesus say that? What a weird thing to say. He says it because his followers are in exile and they need to know it. They need to know that they're in exile. Humanity wasn't built for the world the way that it is currently. Followers of Jesus are the ones who know they are in exile. And they're the ones who live like it. This is our exile, you and me. We are not designed for this world as it exists. We were designed for the garden. We were designed to be at home with our creator. We were designed to dwell with him in eternal, never-ending joy. How do we get there? How do we get home? God tells Adam and Eve how, and that's Genesis 3.15 again. How do we get home? God is going to make a way through the sacrifice of Jesus. John 14, 6, Jesus says it. I am the way and the truth and the life. He says I'm the way because he's the way home. He's the way back to God. He's the way back to our creator. He's the way back to eternal life. He's the way back to never-ending joy. All of these things are are what Jesus provides us the way to. We get home through Jesus. Now, if you'll indulge me for a second, I want to talk about this idea as it relates to us here. As a church, we have or the opportunity to be the clearest expression of what home looks like. I know for many of you, for a long time, home doesn't feel like church. 
people have hurt you and harmed you maybe in, in the context of the local church. And, and sometimes we're a mess. We're people who are just a mess. We say hurtful things. We act hurtfully. We sin. And it's hurtful. But for us here, as we gather together as God's people, as those who are in Christ, we have the, the opportunity to picture most clearly what, what this will look like, what paradise will look like. These are the people who you're going to spend eternity with if you are in Christ. When we gather together to worship God, this is what we will be doing for the rest of eternity. And that should excite us, not be boring. Oftentimes we come here and it feels boring. We don't sing because we're bored. Why are we bored? Why are we bored by this truth? That God is bringing us back to himself. And when the people of God gather together, we picture what home is like. We picture what home is like. What if we brought that type of energy into that space? What if we brought that type of understanding into this space? Not just a thing to do to get right with God or to look good in our community or to act the way that we are told we're supposed to act. But what if we came here and understood ever, this world is not our home, but when we're here, this is closer to home than we're ever going to get. And when we die and when we spend eternity together with one another, we will see very clearly that this is most closely tied that experience than anything else that the world has to offer. Christians do this thing where we look around and we see people doing things that we think are fun. But we know as Christians we can't do those things. Right? There are limits on us, right? And so we shouldn't be thinking like that. But for us as believers in this place, we must begin to think, no, no we have freedom in a way that is not experienced by anyone else outside of us. Outside of this place, we, we experience people who are enslaved, not who are free. Enslaved to sexual sin, and enslaved to, to drugs and alcohol, enslaved to lifestyles that don't honor and, 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 and respect one another. Lifestyles that don't have anything in common with other people except for the fact that they're only living for themselves. And so when we come into this space, I, I want to encourage you all that this is the place that looks most like home. This is the place where we get to picture what our belonging looks like. So, three biblical themes that we see introduced here. Faith and sacrifice and exile. And they all have a clear through line for us. So let me say these. I'm going to make these three statements for you. By naming the woman Eve, Adam demonstrates faith in the promise given in Genesis 3.15. By making garments from animal skins for Adam and Eve, God introduces the idea of sacrifice as a covering for sin and points forward to the final provision for sin made in Jesus Christ. Third, by removing Adam and Eve from the garden, God shows that his people are now in exile, but not forever. A way will be made, and that way is Jesus Christ. Here's how I think this all fits together for us. This is how I think this all fits together. By faith, 
Adam believed the promises of God that through a sin-atoning sacrifice, God would bring his people back to the garden. By faith, Adam believed in the promises of God that through a sin-atoning sacrifice, God would bring his people back to the garden. That's what he's actively doing through Jesus Christ. Paradise was lost, but through the shed blood of Jesus, it would be regained. And I want you to see that this has implications for us in our day-to-day lives. Three quick things for you. First, considering faith. We must be grounded in God's word to know God's promises. There is simply no way to know what God promises you unless you go to his word. Psalm 1, 1 through 3 paints this picture for us. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. When the psalmist says that the man delights in the law of the Lord, he means his word. Faith bears fruit because it's firmly fixed adjacent to the streams of living water of God's word. We also must look forward to the fulfillment of God's promises. This is the future-oriented element. Just to know the promises of God is not enough. We must also eagerly anticipate them. Do you talk about God's promises around your dinner table? Do you, do you think about them when you wake up or when you go to sleep? Here, Start here this week. Go to Isaiah 41.10. Isaiah 41.10. Write it down. God says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Write it down and put it somewhere where you look this week and read it often. And then eagerly anticipate what God is planning to do through strengthening you and upholding you in the midst of your difficulty or in the midst of your disappointment or when you're drained. Also here we see that we must not be bogged down in the temporary. Our world around us wants our attention. Our focus must be piercing and and unaltered or undeterred by the lures of the world. Only allowing the temporary pleasures of the world to point us to a greater pleasures that belong to us in eternity. And then we must take action and step with our beliefs. Faith without works is dead. If the promises of God do not drive you to action, then you have yet to believe them. You don't believe them if it means nothing for you and you do nothing about them. The second thing I would like to say as far as implications go is that the sacrifice of the animal for Adam and Eve and the once and all sacrifice made by Jesus lead us to live lives of sacrifice. When Paul says in Romans chapter 12 that we are to present ourselves as living sacrifices, what he means is we are to wake up every day and die to self and self-interest. We're meant to love our neighbors and love our enemies. We're meant to exist for others and not just ourselves. We're to follow Jesus into death that demands humbling oneself to the lowest place possible. Which one of us in this room is willing to do that? And I wonder what it might look like for you this week. Could it be 
cleaning up after dinner, after your spouse has had a difficult day or is feeling under the weather? Could it look like spending 30 more minutes with a friend as they grieve the loss of a loved one? Could it look like helping cover someone's medical expenses when they find themselves in a tough spot? And for some of you, step one is just being around the people of God more regularly in order to have opportunities to be self-sacrificial. We don't always like to think about giving up things or sacrificing things. Again, we're a have-your-cake-and-eat-it-too type of society. We're told that we should be accumulating things, not giving them up. But sacrificing our own desires and dreams and self and self-interest may be the most profound witness that we have in our world. What if it wasn't about getting? What if it was about giving? And Jesus gave it all. And so I wonder what would be too much for us. The third and final thing I'd like to say is just simply know your home and know that it's not here. Know your home and know that it's not here on this earth. When Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden, we went with them. We all went with them. This earth is not our home. In Christ, we have no home until we're raised with Christ in the resurrection. We are always seeking the comforts of home here. But oftentimes, when we think about our home as the place that we get to do what we want or have our possessions. But maybe... Home isn't just about getting what you want. Maybe it's about being who you are. The garden was Adam and Eve's home, but when they went away from it, or when they went after what they wanted, it was taken away from them. The garden wasn't about getting things as it was about being something. Perfectly being how God designed them. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. We aren't made for this world. Our current homes now are but small shadows of the home that we'll inherit and one day inhabit. We should care for our earthly homes with the full understanding that it is not our home here on earth, but a home in exile. So friends, last thing I would say is this week, let's trust fully in God's promises given in his word and live as those who are exiles in a foreign land. And let's live lives of sacrifice, putting to death our self and self-interest. Let's pray.